We are live. All right, hello there. Welcome to uh, Connected Learning TV, and this is the second webinar in a May 2015 series uh, titled Equity by Design, uh, DML 2015 Showcase. This is the theme for the DML conference. And if you're watching right now, we want you to take a moment and share this uh, event with your networks, and we hope you know how to do that. I'm Alan Levine. I'm coming to you live from my home office in Strawberry, Arizona. I'm an itinerant, self-employed web geek, and also, I will say right here, I'm a white male ed technologist, and we'll deal with that in a second. Uh, but on this series on connected learning, uh, we're going to be shining spotlight on topics and speakers from the 2015 Digital and Media Learning Conference. You should go. The conference theme is Equity by Design. It's going to be June 11th to 13th in downtown Los Angeles. And you can find everything about it at dml2015.dmlhub.net. And now for the main event, I'm talking with Audrey Waters. And I'm going to let her uh, give her one-line uh, bio because I think it defies it. Uh, but we're going to be discussing a lot how open learning and maybe ed tech um, maybe address educational inequalities. There's, a, there's more than we can even get to in an hour. Um, but I can't think of anybody better to talk to this um, than Audrey Waters. So um, before I let Audrey talk, <laughs> like I can stop that, um, a couple details. If you're watching live right now, um, we want your comments and questions. Um, you can send it by Twitter. The hashtags are, you know what a hashtag symbol is, DML2015 and uh, hashtag connected learning. You can use the Q&A feature in the Google Hangout. Um, there, we're going to be trying to juggle. We hope we get a lot of comments. Um, in fact, that could probably drive the whole discussion. Um, but Audrey, you're like a chronicle of education innovator. You're like big time now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the big time, right. Um, and thanks for the wonderful photo that accompanied my profile, right. Um, yeah, like you, I am an itinerant, um, an itinerant uh, education technologist. Um, I'm talking today from my home in Hermosa Beach where it's actually raining. Um, ha uh, the folks in LA I think are probably happy to see rain today. Um, I'm, you know, people ask me why I hate education technology. Um, I don't at all, I actually, but I think it's important that we are a lot more critical about education technology than I think the marketing machine, um, than the marketing machine wants us wants us to be. I think that there are important questions to ask about how we use technology. What are the implications um, of technology in the classroom, but also sort of politically? And so I think that these questions of equity are things that unfortunately just tend to not tend to not be addressed. I think we're really happy to sort of have silver, silver bullet-like conversations around education and education plus technology just seems to sort of enhance that silver bullet to some sort of like platinum, platinum level um, uh, uh, device. And so I think, I mean hopefully what we can sort of talk through today are the ways in which education technology sort of can ignore these things, how it can actually perhaps make uh, make inequalities worse. Um, and that was more than a sentence introduction, so I'll shut up. <laughs> no, we, we <laughs> never want you to shut up. I'm going to be one shutting up here. Um, I'm not sure where to start, but um, uh, you, you mentioned something in your writing recently. Um, you know, I know your background is studying folklore. And um, this is the kind of thing that you do, like, you know, there's like, uh, we use this word myth 
um, so often to talk about something when we say it's almost like not true, like the myth of some technology to promise this, or the myth of of equality. And you kind of brought out that that you know in mythology, I mean, myths are heroic stories, and so you know maybe it's because of MythBusters, but you know, is 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 equity um, is is it a myth, and what kind is it? I mean, I think that this this idea that um, I mean, I think in some ways the the myth one of the myths that we have around education, and as you said, by myth I mean really our most sacred story. Um, I think that we use myth sometimes casually to mean well that's a lie, but I think that oftentimes the stories that are really become myths in our culture are the ones that we don't we don't question at all. And I think that one of the myths that we have in our culture is this idea that education um, is going education alone is or is going to address systematic inequalities across the board. If people only had more education, then things are things are sort of going to be fixed. And I think we really believe in the the power of education to be transformative. Now that's not to say I'm not saying that education isn't transformative, but I think that because we're so often so caught up in this idea that education alone is the answer, we tend to not recognize or talk about the ways in which education actually doesn't address these these sort of systematic issues and the ways in which education also might reinforce, you know, reinforce certain types of hierarchies, certain notions of privilege. And so I think that, I don't think that, I mean, I think that, you know, we can think about equity as being a goal to attain um, and work towards. I think we should. I think we should strive towards a more socially just world. But this idea that the way we get there is simply through, um, through education is only to me part part of the, you know, part of what we need to be, part of what we need to be addressing. And certainly adding technology to the mix doesn't somehow make our quest for justice more efficient. It doesn't somehow make it um, more, you know, uh, more more relevant to, you know, 21st, 21st century demands for justice or whatever the, you know, whatever the buzzwords might might be. So if it's like, you know, in the same vein, like if we just have more open resources or more free videos or more iPads uh, distributed, it's kind of ignoring uh, this larger social context of what's going on. Yeah, I think that's why the, I mean, I think that's why the, what one of the things that's really striking about the MOOC conversation in particular is that um, many of the, um, you know, many of the lead, many of the, um, um, MOOC um, entrepreneurs, I guess we call them, sort of have wrapped themselves in this notion that MOOCs are going to sort of MOOCs are going to democratize education. That they are going to be this thing that's going to open up access um, and address again address sort of some of the systemic problems that we have around access to higher education. And I think that higher education is certainly a lot more complicated beast than just whether or not you have access to um, a textbook for your molecular biology class, right? It's not just a matter of do you have access to the content. Higher education has a whole other, a whole lot of other working pieces. But again, um, if we just are, if we're just sort of believing this 
um, believing this really powerful story that somehow access to the content is um, is the solution, then I think we're really missing um, we're really missing addressing what some of the underlying issues might be. Right, like um, Justin Reich's research and where he um, finds that people disproportionately um, get advantage by, um, he studied wikis, but also uh, the con videos. And it's much more complex than, than it looks like on the surface. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's, I mean, unfortunately, we don't, we tend to not really, we tend to not really go for nuance, right? We really like things to be sort of black or white. We want it to be easy. We want things to fit into a neat little package that we can then put in a press release or fit into a commercial during the Super Bowl, we don't tend to want to have to say, well, it depends. Like, well, it depends doesn't really, like, get your, your you know, <laughs> politicians to sort of move, make policy de decisions. Well, it depends doesn't get administrators to commit to commit to doing things. But unfortunately, I think that well, it depends piece is we need to be doing a lot more lot more of that. So if, if you had the, the money and power of the LA Public School District <laughs> um, and you were going to try to um, address this issue of, of equity in education uh, and you said, okay, let's scratch iPads off the list. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, I wouldn't want to answer that question, but I'm asking you, what would you do? I mean, I think on one hand, I think that this, that the that the we have to like back things up even um, even farther than that. I saw um, I saw a statistic last week. I think that there's still um, 40 schools in the state of California that do not have access to the internet. Um, now, granted, California is a big state. 40 might not, but 40 40 schools. That's that's a lot of schools. I mean, we have some base, basic technological infrastructure issues that we need to address before we sort of um, move down the path of expecting every student to have some sort of eye device so that they can consume their Pearson content, right? And so I think that there are other things that we need to think about, other infrastructure pieces, and not just not just access to Wi-Fi, right? Um, but there are infrastructure pieces that we, that we need to address long before we sort of go down this path of adopting what are really sort of consumer, a consumer device that is shiny and um, again has, you know, really nice commercials during the Super Bowl, but doesn't exactly address some of the, the needs of students. And it doesn't exactly address needs of the students in, in necessarily in affluent um, districts, but it certainly isn't something that it isn't necessarily something that's going to again fix education um, for student for um, for for poor for poor students. Are people still talking about digital divides? I think I think they are. I mean, I think that they are. Um, I think that on one hand, but the conversation has changed. Um, there were you know. The Pew Internet um, Project always does really interesting research about what what actually the shape the shape of access looks like, and the vast majority of folks do have some internet connection, but for a chunk of people that is through their mobile device, right? So their only access to the internet is through um, a smartphone, but. That doesn't mean that they have sort of, that, that that's really not an equitable access to 
the internet. I mean, if for no other reason than many of these folks reported that there were that they quickly ran up against their data limits, right? Mm -hmm. So that there were that they, they couldn't make it a whole month before reaching their data cap, that there were times in which they had to um, stop paying for, um, for access to the data plan on their phone because they couldn't afford it. So even though folks, on one hand, it's easy to say, well, almost everyone now has access to mobile, to mobile communications, you know, 24/7 access in their pocket. We can do all sorts of interesting mobile learning, um, mobile learning initiatives. But it's a lot more complicated than that. And as we move towards, particularly as we move towards, um, even something like this, right? So a streaming video, um, access to either to consume video or to participate in a in a video streaming conversation, that's still out of the reach for a lot of folks whose access comes through through a smartphone. Smartphones are great, they're incredibly powerful, but we haven't addressed we haven't addressed the digital divide completely. And just saying everyone has access to a device, everyone has access to the internet doesn't really reveal um, the difference between accessing the internet on a MacBook on a DSL line that you can afford every month and having to do so through an Android phone that runs out of data, you know, by the 17th of every month. Yeah, and the front edge is moving all the time. And, and totally. The, the, the lower edge is, is having trouble keeping up, and so yeah. it, it's a continual spread. Yeah. And I think, but I think that that's only one of the, for me, that's only one of the questions, too. One of the things that I notice, so it's a, it's a matter of access, right? So who has access to devices? Who has access to the Internet? Who has access to high-speed Internet? Um, as well, is in turn is also how is that technology being used? And these are this is one of the things to me that I feel like we need to do a better job addressing in education technology. Um, I am a huge fan of the maker movement, for example. I think that the maker movement to me is sort of, um, it really is, um, in a lot of ways represents sort of project-based learning, inquiry-based learning. You're curious about how something, how a, how a machine works and you can take it apart, hack on it, build it, you know, um, tinker with it. That's to me a really powerful way of learning. But not everyone has access to those sorts of opportunities, right? So having a device, in the case of LA, LAUSD, you know, every student purportedly was supposed to get an iPad, but iPads are completely locked down, right? You can't, you can't open up an i. I mean, you can. <laughs> you can't really open up an iPad. You can't get to the command line of an iPad. You can't do programming on an iPad. And so the opportunities to tinker on an iPad are really different than, um, and if that's your, again, if the only access to a computing device you have is through, your Android phone or through a school-issued iPad, that's a very different way of, um, that's a very different sort of access to technology. And then in the classroom, if the opportunities you have are, we're going to use your iPad so that we're really just doing worksheets, right? They're digital worksheets. Um, perhaps there are bells and whistles and sounds when you get the answer right. Um, but it's still drill and kill. That's a very different use of technology than, again, being able to sort of build build things with Raspberry Pi, being able to play with Makey Makey, being able to explore things, um, and do sort of creative creative work. 
-hmm. And so are, are tools being used in the classroom really to do drill and kill, or are they being used to really enhance students' capabilities to encourage creativity and curiosity? And again, I think if we look at what affluent kids get to do with technology, it looks really different than what poor kids get to do with technology. In fact, we should have been celebrating that some of the kids hacked the iPads. <laughs> yeah. Some ingenuity going on there. I think it was great. I mean, that was one of the things that sort of was, to me, like really disappointing about how that whole story came came pl played out. Because the one of the reasons that the students were frustrated was that when you give a student a device like a like an iPad or a, or a smartphone, one of the things that students love about it is that it actually has a lot of the things that they, it gives them access to the things that they want to use technology for. They want to listen to music, right? They want to be able to watch YouTube videos. They want to be able to use it to chat with their friends, through whether through text messaging or through, you know, various messaging apps. They want to be able to, like, play, have something going on on their iPad in the background while they would do something else. Mm -hmm. And the school district locked it down so that the, so that students couldn't they couldn't play Pandora, they couldn't access YouTube, and so the students the students figured out a way around that. And uh, I mean, of course, of course they did. I, I mean, why why and why give students why give students an iPad if you really just want them to read a Pearson textbook and do worksheets? I, I mean that. Seems like spending $800 a device on a shiny Pearson textbook is is a really bad investment. And that's that's a totally it's a design decision that was made with how this was going to be rolled rolled out. And you know it's it's almost a uh, design strategy that goes beyond the design of the technology. Totally. I mean, and that's I mean I think that that's why this phrase equity by design is is I think quite powerful because we have to think about from the start. Um, how we're going to address not just the ed tech pieces, right, but the education, the the more the broader education opportunities as well. And we have to, we can't just sort of plug those things in at the end. We can't just sort of say at the end of designing an experience or a course or a program or a policy that um, at the end we're going to sort of check a couple of box, boxes to see that we've done X, Y, or Z. We really need to sort of think from the beginning what do these opportunities look like that are equitable, but they also um, open up opportunities for everybody, and again, not just opportunities for affluent students to be able to tinker and explore and do projects. Um, not just, you know, not just the, it's not just the smart kids that get, should get to do meaningful work, right? I mean, this should be something that is open and available and encouraged for everybody. Yeah, and you've kind of um, you've kind of hinted at or, or written about how um, inequities um, kind of factor into the the design of technology, and I've always wanted to to probe that a little bit more because you know I'm someone who codes, and like I never thought about like am I bringing some bias um, that I'm not aware of, um, and even I think you've talked about it. The, the designers of the internet were you know white North American European. Um, and there's some Russian and, and et cetera of the original computers, but um, you know, how do we start thinking about that more in this idea about um, technology and its own design? So I've been thinking about this a lot lately in terms of um, Yik Yak, 
which is an anonymous messaging app that's um, really designed around and pitched towards college communities. Um, so it's sort of geo, it's um, geofenced so that the messages show up based on where where you are, um, and it's it's become quite a um, quite a horrible sort of reflection of almost every campus I've visited recently. I've talked to the students, and many of them are quite embarrassed about what Yik Yak reveals. Mm -hmm. um, and so the way in which you know Yik Yak works is purportedly. Purportedly, you're anonymous. Um, your your name is not attached, or even an avatar attached to your um, to your updates. Um, but then, much like some of these other um, programs on or sites on the web, um, updates are voted up or down. And this mechanism of the voting up or down thing to me is really fascinating because this seems to be a mechanism that is in place with some of the most popular sites on the internet, Reddit, right, the front page of the internet, Hacker News, um, Stack Overflow. People see this as a way of surfacing, people say that this is a way of surfacing the most interesting and the most important content, but on, uh, or the best, right, this is the best, the best answer on Stack Overflow, the best post on Hacker News, supposedly are the ones that rise to the top. But that's not what happens at all. In fact, often the most, the, some of the most horrific things end up on the front page of Hacker News, or the front page of Hacker News or Reddit. The most horrible responses are voted up to the top. They, it surfaces the sort of, it surfaces the sort, and reinforces the sort of um, hegemonic culture that again is a very white, young white male culture, and I think that we're seeing that in Yik Yak, for example, and that's by design, right? The design of Yik Yak isn't, I mean, I'm not saying that campuses, that university campuses are all wonderful places where there is no sexism and no racism, not at all, um, but they really do surface, they really surface that sort of behavior, and I don't think it's necessarily because the posts are anonymous. That's what some people say is when people are not, you know, when people are anonymous, they say things more freely. I think that it's actually this mechanism of the voting up or down of certain kinds of posts. And, and I think that that's a, you know, that's, again, that's a design decision. That's, mm. that's a, that's a, that's a programming decision. Um, and and it's, I, it was the easiest one. You know, yeah, to, yeah. Being calculated like just like that, I could do that. <laughs> right. And so you know, when I see those, that sort of discussion forums, right, uh, message forums, um, move into the learning management system or move into MOOCs, I'm like, I don't know. Like, what does it what does it mean, for example, in which when and MOOCs tend to already have a significantly higher number of men participating in them, what is it going to mean when we are adopting these sorts of um, technological decisions that surface that surface the most upvoted posts to the top? Again, I don't think it means that the best things, the most, shine, the, the most shining positive examples, the best sort of most interesting insights in the classroom are going to be what's surfaced. Hmm. And that's a, you know, again, that's a, that's a technological decision. So what are some other ways we could um, provide these uh, slices into these uh, massively 
volumeless spaces where people are communicating other than this sort of, um, it's almost like a, it's like a rush at, at a record store when it opens. It's like a stampede in some sense. And yeah, uh, it's it is it's really interesting um, to to watch too, and the kinds of you know I don't I'm not sure what the you know I'm not sure what the what the answer would be. I mean, in some ways, is it is it going to be you know limiting uh, or weighting people's people's voices differently? I know that edX was exploring trying to surface the difference between someone who was asking a question and question posts on a forum um, sort of appeared and were weighted differently than um, explanation responses. Mm. And so I think that, I mean, I think that some of it has to do with just rethinking the ways in which things get surfaced so that it's not simply, this got 16 upvotes, therefore it must be great. Like if it got 16 upvotes by a certain group, a certain you know, a certain group within the class or within the the community. Maybe that's a different sort of metric than that's the best. Maybe it's a it's a reflection of that group's power. And I don't think we really spend some time thinking about what does that group, you know, what does the power of that group sort of reflect. Hmm. I, I got a question. I want to get to that. They come through the Q and A. But since you mentioned Reddit and. Um, Mike Caulfield, our, our wise friend out there, tweeted this morning that Reddit is instituting some changes. Um, and, and, you know, I, I know I'm not major into Reddit, but, you know, for a lot of people it can be more vile than YouTube comments. And so it sounds like they're trying to institute a little more moderating. Is it, does it feel real to you? Um, I think it's going to be really very, very interesting to, to watch. Um, and I think... I think that it's important because I think that Reddit. I mean, it's to me. I don't. I don't go to Reddit, and that's. Um, I feel sad about that. I mean, and and I feel excluded. If Reddit is the front page of the internet, and I know, as a woman online, I'm not welcome there. I mean, that you know that that really sucks. I do think that Reddit's CEO currently is Ellen Powell, who was recently involved in a lawsuit against um, the venture capitalist firm Kleiner's. Um, Smith Perkins Caulfield, and so I think that she's. I'm really pleased to have seen her take the lead on trying to change the culture of Reddit, and more broadly change the culture of Silicon Valley and the and the tech industry, mm. because in some ways we're not going to we're not going to address these questions if we keep driving women, if we keep driving people of color, if we keep driving people from who aren't from the sort of global north out of the conversation. It really quickly becomes an echo chamber when you've acted so badly that no one else wants to come to your party but but your bro friends. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think this question we have is, is um, uh, talking something about economics and um, inferring about flat currency. I'm thinking maybe a, a Bitcoin um, allegory, but um, asking to address what kind of roles economic structures and incentives might have on tech and higher ed. I'm, I'm assuming is maybe understanding you know the 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 impact of of economic inequalities. Um, Huh? Yeah. I mean, I think that I think that what we're seeing—it's really interesting because I think in some ways Silicon Valley has us hoodwinked, or the tech industry has us hoodwinked into think in, or the venture capital community, um, 
is is exerting its power a lot more than it actually reflects in the economy, right? So venture capital is only a tiny, tiny piece of the economy, but you would think in which the ways in which Mark Andreessen and Peter Thiel get to sort of command attention within the tech world that that you know 80% of the U.S.'s economic dollars were sort of um, were were venture capital. It's a fra it's it's a smaller amount of our economy than than the than the prison system, right? Yeah, and the prison system is a pretty good pretty good chunk. Yeah. Um, so I think they're really driving they're really driving a conversation and trying to become politically more powerful. I think that we are seeing the tech industry becoming really powerful politically, both in terms of the lobbying dollars, right? Google. Um, Google is one of the le um, Google is, spends a lot of money on lobbying. The telecommunications industry, right? The Verizons and Time Warner Cables and Comcasts spend a ton of money on lobbying. Um, and then I think more at the you know at the state, local, and even uh, school level, really these are power like these seem like powerful stories. I think that are being pitched to administrators pitched to all of us really about that our future necessarily has to look like um, something that's adopted not just their product but their sort of ideology that comes that comes with it as well so I think that in some ways I think that their power that their that their voice is a lot louder than their actual economic power but I think that they're trying very 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 hard to reshape conversations that give them more economic power Okay, and to the questioner, if I horribly mangled that question and didn't get your, <laughs> please, please ask again. Uh, I'd also wonder, like, you know, yeah, we, it, it's interesting. We, it seems like venture capital is like this major driver. So um, are there other drivers that might um, influence development of new technology, you know, um, social awareness, um, you I mean, know, that's the, the good of the world? <laughs> that's the danger, I think, of part of this ideology is this notion that what that we've, like a lot of folks shrug their shoulders now and say, well, you know, we're, we're seeing the public funding of education on the decline, but it's not ever coming back. We don't, you know, we're going to have to sort of find other ways to fund schools. We're going to have to find other ways to fund education than through, than through the than through public funding, and I don't think that that's a that I don't think that we need to necessarily see that as being a truth. Um, I think that, in fact, we should we should push we should and could push back on that narrative that somehow public money is gone and never ever will it return again. Um, and so I think that again I think that handing over handing over this story right handing over this myth to the private sector to the markets is something that we should be pretty pretty wary of. And handing over this that story about um, the future of education to markets and then to technology even more so. Uh, I think that we can ask better questions about why, you know, why would we want to, why would we want to defund public higher education? Why would we want to outsource what we've done, what education has, has done to, um, to folks from the tech industry? Um, and maybe there are some reasons why we'd want to do some of that, but maybe there are some reasons why <laughs> we sure the hell wouldn't. It's almost, it's like we missed, you know, I'm not assuming everybody has some of these epic stories, but, you know, the teachers that affected us, um, you know, uh, not everybody has had the best teachers, but there's probably been one who showed that they, 
they cared about us. You know, you forget about all these things that you can't do with technology that a teacher does. Well, and I think too, we we seem to have the you know, I, like I like you said, I spend a lot of time talking about these myths, and I'm really interested in the way in which. Um, we tend to rewrite the history of technology, and you would think the way in which the way in which Silicon Valley talks about itself, um, talks about its origins, is that government and universities had nothing to do with it. That this was somehow too, you know, that Hewlett and Packard were in their garage in Palo Alto, and they just sort of came up with this idea that had that had no act that had no connection to the fact that they were both at Stanford, right? That they actually had access to people who had huge research labs. That they they didn't sort of just come they didn't come up with their ideas in this sort of isolated um, you know it wasn't simply the garage, but that but we tell this story about the garage that that erases the connections to government grants that erases the connections to university education to laboratories to hundreds of people working on projects instead it becomes the story of one or two heroes right it's the story of Steve Jobs it's the story of Bill Gates and we're very good about erasing the fact that lots of these innovations happened thanks to <laughs> universities yeah, and that's that's. I so enjoyed your your series this year of really digging into um, the the history of everything from from teaching machines to the most recent one about you know I never knew that there were airplanes flying around <laughs> trying to distribute video courses. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I uh, the, actually this is a that's a, a post that I'm working on another connection to this that I think that we should think a lot about the way in which you know television education television operated. Because you know we had this other model for networks. We talk a lot about um, networks as being something that the internet um, that the internet gave us, but the net networks are something that we saw with with television as well. And so, how do we recognize what's really different about the internet from television in terms of broadcasting, in terms of the re read writability of the web, for example, but also the way in which power and control work. Right, so one of the strengths of the internet, I think, is that it is sort of this decentralized, it is the sort of decentralized thing, whereas television networks are very much about centralized control, deciding what content appears, who gets to sort of decide the schedule, who gets to have a voice, um, and I fear that we're, gonna, we're seeing the internet start to look more and more like television. Um, where certain channels, right, certain channels are really dictating the what the shape of things. And to me that, you know, that's always a warning sign for how again, for, for questions of power and equity. When you see these monsters like Google, when you see these monsters like Facebook. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's so easy to assume that the internet will be like the way it has been. Um, and and there, there's things attacking its its very foundation and yeah. yeah, that's pretty bad. Uh, another question from the Q and A. Someone's um, designing um, an educator, looking for some suggestions for a human-centered design project. Um, interested in pedagogy involved 
they're looking for how you, you sort of uh, teach and include these ideas of equity, design, and equality. IDEO, I think, is a, a design um, engineering approach, I think. Um, but, you know, for people looking to uh, be inclusive um, in these design decisions of their courses, um, I would just say read everything that you've written, but that's, <laughs> that's too easy. <laughs> you know, I think one of the things that I think one of the things that we for, forget is or and I think that you know this isn't just a, a technology issue. This is a this is an institutional question around education as well. Is that I think that we don't necessarily do a good job recognizing that students students have agency and that students should be subjects in their learning and not objects of the system, right? Not objects of the institution that's going to shape and decide what they should learn and not objects of technology that are going to shape and decide what they should learn. So for me, I think that we have to sort of think about how do we how do we sort of shift and give students more voice. And I don't by that I don't mean how do we make reshape education as a sort of consumerist vision, right? I don't mean how do we make how do we turn students from students into consumers. That's the danger I think of of not being critical about what we mean by this. But really how do we design for the things that students um, so that students actually are active and active and participate in these discussions that they aren't sort of this absent absent other that's talked about but that's never included in these design decisions. I mean, how often you know how often do we see students participating in conferences? How often do we bring students to the table when we're talking about what technology to buy or what textbooks to use or what the shape of their you know what the shape of their coursework needs to look like. Um, so I think that you know, bringing bringing students bringing students to the to the table is one of the is one of the first and most important things we should we should be thinking about. Uh, it says it doesn't necessarily sort of erase the hierarchies, but I think also it it sort of counters this 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 notion that we have this imaginary student that we often have in our heads. Who has certain? Who's um, you know? Tressie McMillan Cotton talks about the roaming autodidact. That all students that are designed for are self-motivated learners that understand how to negotiate and navigate institutions. That they know how to get resources. That they have a network that they're connected to. That they don't. That they can sort of navigate navigate the learning experiences because just because. Yeah, and I think we need to sort of really rethink about who, what who students are, what you know, what students look like, what students need, and listen to them, and not just make the assumption that everyone in college is sort of like this upper middle class, eighteen year old. That's just not the, that's just not who what what learners look like. And that's such a long way to go because students aren't used to being asked, and and right. and they're probably put off when you ask. It's like, wait a minute, you know, you're supposed to tell us, but um. You know, yeah. I, I've seen examples of that, and it doesn't take much um, to to completely to flip that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that's unfortunately that's I think one of the problems with too with waiting until like it's somehow not until college that you that that people um, that you're sort of given given these opportunities to sort of have more of a say in what you do have more of a say in your learning and by then we sort of beaten it out as students right they come they come to they come to kindergarten 
really cur super curious about the world around them, asking great questions, and by the time they graduate high school, you know, they've got their baseball cap down and they hope that no one notices them. And they don't want to ask questions, they just want to get do whatever the teacher says in order to get the assignment and be done. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard to sort of have someone have spent, you know, 13 years learning to be an object of the institution and then suddenly say to them, congratulations, now along with student debt, you do get a little more voice in what, what happens. But perhaps, I mean, in other venues now, perhaps thanks to um, some technologies, I mean, they're having experiences that are radically different to their school experiences. And, yeah. Um, that creates conflict. I think that that's, I mean, I think that that's really, really interesting to think about the ways in which student, I mean, I think the way in which it's, it's more apparent now that the kinds of opportunities that students have to, um, to be, to be learners. And I think this, I think that we always were, um, but I think that they tended to be more isolated, right? So you might have learned, um, I, my, my, I had an uncle who was a fly fisherman and he taught, he taught me how to, you know, how to tie a fly. But that, that wasn't something, that was just a, you know, a, pri a, a sort of a, a private opportunity in his garage. That wasn't something that other students got to participate in. That wasn't something that um, others got to see. And the garage was a, pri you know, the garage, um, the basement, the, the kitchen, these are all very sort of, these were places in which I think students have always done, you know, children have always learned and had learning opportunities at home, but they were very isolated. And so I think it's different today because I think that they are, we see it more, right? It's not simply, you can still be working in your garage, but I think that then you run back in, check out YouTube, or you, you know, you broadcast, you broadcast from your garage. Yeah, I was. Um, I went out with a someone who's like a, a bird watcher, and like you know, I I hear a bird, I was like that's a bird or something like that. But um, watching how um, the master bird watcher um, was teaching was really interesting because you can't do it in a video. I mean, you can do some, but um, it, it's basically you know the maybe an apprentice model sort of thing, but that mm -hmm. experiential part um, is not something you're going to get from a lecture video. Yeah, the it's funny because to me that I am so I'm so sort of suspicious of these arguments that we make in some ways about about the sort of YouTube learning from YouTube because I you know back 20 plus years ago when I did my um, undergraduate degree I did it through distance education and and at the time where I was shipped a box of video cassettes. And so there were things that I could watch. I took statistics through video cassette correspondence course. And there I could replay, rewind, replay, rewind, replay a hundred times. And I still didn't understand, you know, statistical regression. I mean, I think that having the opportunity to refresh and rewind is, is, is great, but it's, you know, without that sort of human, without that human help, without mentorship, um, without the, the, the person, I think that, I just don't think that, I don't think that the ability to, to hit replay is, is necessarily the only missing piece. Hmm. Has, um, has anything changed uh, for you in the last year with sort of your interactions with the, the ed tech industry? Um, are they any better or are they still the same? <laughs> Um, I think that they're, 
I think that the industry is still the same. I'm, you know, I keep predicting that we're um, that we're going to have to sort of that the that the bubble is going to burst. That 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 investors are are going to look as they did the last time the bubble burst. Look at ed tech and say, you know what? There isn't actually the next Google here. We're going to stop um, stop the sort of madness of investment. Um, I think that there's just a lot, there's just so much, um, despite what I said earlier, there's a lot of money sort of flowing into startups right now. There's still a lot of money flowing into the early stage of startups. And so I don't think that there's really a lot of reason for people to be reflective. I still think that the Silicon Valley startup myth um, is going strong in education. Folks, folks aren't really asking questions yet about is this, is this working. I think the LA iPad issue gave districts a lot of pause, but I'm not sure I've seen that sort of trickle down to to seeing a lot of entrepreneurs be necessarily reflective about what what they're doing. Right. Um, wow, I lost my train of, of questions here, so I'm just going to have to, <laughs> to make something up. Um, you know, I, I was going to say something in the beginning about you know we're not you know. I'm a white male technologist. It's not meant to be like the diversity panel, um, but it's a tricky thing. And so, you know, I, I know, you know, that for for some people like Tressie, like to always be asked to speak, to represent, you know, uh, Black Americans, that's probably a burden to 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 have to speak on the issues of women all the time. I mean, there might be sometimes you don't feel like doing that, um, and and it, it's got to take a toll. Um, so yeah. you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's a question or anything. It's just more of a, of a statement. Um, and if anything, you know, the the more this has, to me, it's surfaced a lot more. I don't know for other people, but um, just trying to be more aware of uh, our representations. Um, I think that, I think that this is really important. I mean, and I I it's. I was just at a couple of technology events that weren't education technology events and it's always really startling as a woman to walk into these events and see that there are you know in a room full of 300 people that that you can count on one hand the number of women and when you look at the people who are speaking on stage that there are very 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 few women and very 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 few people of color who are given I'm given a platform to talk, and so I think that we have a long way to go to address address that. I mean, I'm hope I'm hopeful that education um, can can do so. I'm hopeful that it can do so long before um, you know long before the rest of the tech world does. But I'm not sure. I mean, I look you know I look at the kinds of the folks that get chosen as um, speakers at education technology events, and I'm. I don't. I don't necessarily see, you know. I don't necessarily see us sort of winning, winning the sort of any diversity awards there as well. The voices that you know, the voices that get picked up and recognized as being, um, you know, the education technology leaders, they still overwhelmingly, I think, tend to be white men from from Europe or North America. Right, and um, but DML managed to do it. You know, I didn't. I looked at the website. There's not one white male, and I'm like, that's pretty good. Is, is it that impossible? <laughs> I think that's the thing. I think that it, you have to. I mean, it again comes back to equity by design. This can't be something that you, you know, you can't put up the the list of the speakers at your conference, 
um, and then say, oh yeah, well, we know they're all white guys, but um, we promise we've got more speakers coming. <laughs> you, have to say, you have to say from the outset that this is a priority. Yeah. And I think you have to sort of also then ask questions that are going to be interesting beyond, um, you know, you have to sort of change the, the frame of the conference. You have to change the frame of the questions. You have to make the, the, the questions seem relevant and meaningful. And I think that, that, that you know, when the, if, if your conference or, you know, it doesn't have to be a conference, but if, if the questions that you're asking are really only meaningful to a small group of engineers, um, then, and the small group, you've made no efforts to sort of change the demogra demographics of that small group of engineers, then it very quickly becomes, becomes an echo chamber. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's not just looking at a, bunch of pictures and making some judgment. It is, it is a message and you know um, I was thinking about I just love the the images from your slides with the Wonder Woman talk um, and this whole thing of like yeah there's a female superhero but she's kind of it. Um, it was, was just brilliant and you know some stuff that people have been tweeting about um, the new Avengers movie. Um, right. Um, which, I, is, which is fascinating, and, and on one hand, you could say like people could say like it's only a movie, but um, you know they they pointed out that in the comics um, have gotten very diverse. The movie has not. Right. I mean, we have a female Thor, right? Yeah. Um, I think that one of the things too that one of the reasons that I chose to talk about Wonder Woman, besides the absolutely fascinating history and connection with educational psychology is that I think that we still have this mythology around people are going to save us, people are going to rescue us, technology is going to rescue us, right? There was the movie Waiting for Superman. This notion that there, you know, this notion that there has to be this sort of hero and this hero is going to look and act a certain way and, you know, to come back to this question of students, like, Students are somehow never depicted in, in this as being, they're the ones that need to be saved. The system needs to be saved. We have this whole, um, this whole idea, idea about rescuing um, that, again, puts people in the position of being, of being a damsel in distress, of being a broken system that needs to be saved. And I think that though that's a story that doesn't necessarily recognize that all of us should have a voice and that we need to do a much, much better job of thinking about which voices are marginalized and which ones are heralded as being Avengers, right? Mm -hmm. It's a rather long road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever get tired? I get tired all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's understandable. Um, what, what are you kind of looking forward to in terms of um, what's going to happen at DML since that's sort of the theme of this webinar series? I'm I'm really looking for I mean I I'm really looking forward to to to, um, to the panels that are going to be um, both the ones that sort of practically address right so people that are actually practically thinking about these things in the classroom these projects as they design them both in sort of formal and in informal sessions I'm also interested in um, I'm looking forward to some of the panels that are still perhaps not theoretical but imaginative so. Um, Tim Mon and Sava Sahili Singh are doing a panel on design fiction, and I think that design fiction is a really interesting way of thinking about sort of it's sort of science fiction meets design, and what happens if we sort of imagine the future forward, right? If we sort of and of course it's it's future facing, so it's 
we can say we can recognize it's fiction. Hmm. But if we sort of play play hit the fast forward button on the state of the world today, what is what are things going to look like, right? And I think that sometimes we end up with fictions, design fiction that's pretty horrific. Um, and I think that that should give us pause and sort of then be able to step back and say, all right, if we're going to have to, if we're going to build towards a more just and equitable future what pieces are we missing, right? Mm -hmm. What pieces of the plot, what pieces of the setting, what characters are we missing? And so mm -hmm. I, I'm looking forward to thinking about, you know, as we imagine the future, sort of what, what, are, what are the pieces that are, uh, in what ways are we moving towards a sort of a really frightening dystopian future? Mm -hmm. and, and how do we stop and not sort of hand ourselves over to, to doom, but say, well, this is our opportunity to intervene. Right? We want to build a better world. We don't want to sort of give over the storytelling capability to the Peter Thiels and Mark Andreessen's of the world, um, besides the fact that they tell horrible, frightening stories. Um, we, can, we, can, we can have a say, and we can build a different future. Hmm. It's almost like if, if I get this theme of, like, you know, instead of waiting for Superman, I mean, we, we can demand this stuff. I think, you know, it, yeah. seems, it seems kind of basic, but how much we've forgotten that you know, we don't have to take all these visions necessarily, right? Um, and and, and it's, a, it's a lot to change, but it can be done. And that we can act as a collective. I mean, I think that this is one of the pieces that that I think that I worry about with with a with a move towards um, the per like the the personal computer and pers and algorithms that are sort of crafted to you. I worry that we're sort of thinking about this this future in which everything is sort of perfect like design designed for the individual and how do we make sure that we're not losing control of the ability to sort of come together as a collective that we're not losing community that we can have collective action and I, I do think that we see some of that online I think that we see that in the in the sort of social media activism around Ferguson for example that people that there is a strong drive towards community and that we can can use technology to build community, but I think that we have to keep, you know, we have to sort of remember that we are, that there's a social collective piece to us and that we're not these individual automatons all with our sort of perfectly designed Google algorithm to give us what we, you know, to give us movie recommendations or dining recommendations or course, course recommendations. Which we could get on our iPad because we could we, just consume we, it. We could. <laughs> You have an iPad. I do have an iPad. Yeah, they're not bad. They do some things. Uh, somebody from the chat. Uh, you have a, a fan out there, so they want a, a link to your regular research, which should be HackEducation.com, correct? That's right. Yep, HackEducation.com. Yeah, self-published, right? No. Self-published. Yes. Yeah, you do technology. We know I, that. <laughs> I do. I do. If you look at my GitHub, if you look at my GitHub uh, profile, you will see that I have. I, I can make a commit to GitHub every day. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm finally catching up because I'm doing some playing around with Jekyll and GitHub, and it's it's a good thing to be uh, learning how to how to do all that. Yeah. So anything else? You know, we're almost at the the end of the hour. Um, um no, I think that I mean one thing I would I think is important to think about when we think about you know the t the technology piece is that these things don't all play out equally for all of us, right? So I w I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which, you know, talk about algorithms um, and surveillance 
and school and discipline. And these notions that we're going to sort of hand over some of our important um, education-oriented decisions to algorithms, I think, should give us, should give us pause. Mm -hmm. um, these things are not neutral. Technology is not neutral. Algorithms are not neutral. And I think that we, you know, we have to sort of back it up again and think about equity. We have to think about the implications of, 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 of the tech we use because it doesn't play out on our bodies. It doesn't play out in our lives um, equally. So none of this is neutral. The stakes are actually incredibly high. And so I think we need to be a lot more critical about, about where technology is headed. All right. And I totally forgot to ask because you always wear cool T-shirts. What's in your shirt? Oh, today's a Gamergate. Um, uh. A nod to Gamergate. <laughs> saying, you have died of ethics in games journalism. <laughs> That's brilliant. Maybe Is that an original or do you find that somewhere? No, it was a fundraiser to get more women becoming video game developers. So That's awesome. <laughs> Well, um, thanks so much for joining. For me, it's like, oh, I get an hour to talk oh, yeah, to Audrey. This Thank <laughs> this you. This is great. So um, this is the stuff. There will be a, a full recording of this webinar, so you can enjoy it on your iPad or any other device. You can get it at uh, www.connectedlearning.tv, and there's a lot of other great uh, series on there well worth watching. So this has been the second of these. I think they all revolve around um, Leaders of the Tracks at DML 2015 conference. Um, Keep talking about it on Twitter. <laughs> I'm terrible at this. Uh, <laughs> hashtag DML2015 and Connected Learning. Um, definitely want to follow uh, Audrey Waters on Twitter. So Audrey, it's like Waters. I keep saying Waters. It's like Waters, but Audrey Waters. And you can easily find her everywhere if you search for her. Um, please share you know, what you got from this or throw some barbs at us. Um, and then come back to Connected Learning TV. Sign up for the newsletter. Um, and thank you. And go to LA in June. I'm going yeah. there. Come to LA. Yeah, <laughs> I hope to see you're home, there. man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right. So uh, thanks again. And uh, someone will probably uh, turn off the signal. We got two minutes. We can we can still goof around. <laughs> <laughs>